Good morning, Mercy House. My name is Cindy. I live in East Hampton with my husband and my three children. This is my youngest, Brianna. The reading today is from Obadiah, and you can find that toward the end of the Old Testament in between Amos and Jonah. And we will be reading the entire book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the, Lord, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, 
and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning humbled by your holiness, by your power, how you transcend this time and this place, how you have always been and always will be. Lord, we pray that you would draw our hearts to you this morning, that we would come to you humbled, confessing that we have sinned against you, just as the people of the Old Testament did time and time again. Father, we thank you that you are a loving Father, a forgiving Father, who welcomes us as your children, even though we are sinners, because of your Son, Jesus, and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We pray you would speak to us through this, your word. Help Jake to help us to make sense of what you have spoken here to your people. Help us know how to apply it to our lives, how to respond. We pray that the children downstairs would be learning of you this morning, that you would be softening their hearts to the gospel. And we thank you for this community, Lord, where we can come together and be reminded of who we truly are in you, brothers and sisters in Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Cindy. You guys may be seated. Thanks, Cindy. All right. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jake Blackwood. I'm an elder here at Mercy House, and I don't think there's any kiddos who need to go downstairs, but if you are kids in grade one to two, I think you can go downstairs uh, now. Um, so, uh, as I just said, I'm an elder here at Mercy House, and I was tasked this week uh, with preparing a sermon that offered us a bit of a break from our focus on the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, and so, since I had a free hit, uh, I decided to go with something that was super familiar and very accessible and that we all read regularly. Um, so obviously I'm kidding here a bit, uh, but my hope today is that uh, you will find that there really is here, uh, even in this most obscure of texts, a richness uh, that uh, will be relevant for us today. So why did I pick the book of Obadiah? Well, um, you just read it. Uh, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, so I guess if you did have like a plan to read through the Bible in a year, good job. Uh, that's one down. You got 65 to go. Try to keep up the pace. Um, but aside from that, I mean, it is a bit hard because it's, it, it, there's, there's not much that's known here about the author. Uh, the date and the occasion uh, is heavily disputed. The pronouncements of judgment we see here, like many of the prophetic books, they're, they're a bit of a downer. Uh, they're kind of harsh. Um, it's not directly quoted by any of the New Testament authors, although uh, there is some evidence that it may be indirectly quoted. Um, 
its references and its themes may seem a bit obscure, so maybe this is one for sort of the Old Testament nerds and not really so relevant for the rest of us, or at least that's how it might seem. Well, one of the first reasons for picking a book like Obadiah is to reaffirm our desire as a church to preach expositionally through the whole of Scripture. So what does that mean? Well, by expositionally, I mean preaching from the text, placing it at the center of our teaching, and not mine nor Tommy Moore's nor the elders' just thoughts on life, right? as if that's the primary means of God's revelation to us. No, we're turning to Scripture. And part of the reason we do that is because that's what Jesus did, for example. In Luke 4, we see him begin to teach by pulling out a scroll with Isaiah on it. And by the way, saying this is about me, but he pulls out Scripture. Uh, We see the apostles do it as well in Acts 2. Peter's big sermon at the beginning of Acts is him taking the book of Joel and preaching about it, okay? Which, by the way, Joel might actually be quoting Obadiah here, so that's where we might get this indirect reference. And furthermore, we see Paul commanding Timothy to to do this in 2 Timothy 4.2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. Safe to say, Paul's taking it pretty seriously there. We want to preach the Bible in context, so we will often preach through whole books of the Bible to really provide the full sweep of the text, or at least large sections of it. And that's not to say we won't have topical sermons. We have and will do topical sermon series, but really our bread and butter should be about preaching through whole books of the Bible, or at least large sections of whole books. So, we want to preach Scripture. We want to preach all of Scripture, since it is profitable, including the more obscure texts. So, in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, we have Paul uh, speaking to Timothy saying, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God must be competent, equipped for every good work. There's a sense here um, that Paul is talking Maybe there's some New Testament texts that are already sort of floating around out there, but uh, the Old Testament is primarily what he has in view when he talks about the sacred writings, and he's saying that these are going to make you wise for salvation. We can apply this to New New Testament texts, yes, but, you know, it's also going to apply to the Old Testament, and and that they're relevant for salvation, they're relevant for the gospel. So we want to affirm our desire to place the Word of God at the center of our church's preaching, the whole Word of God. So this is really the ground floor of our ministry of the Word here in the church on Sunday mornings. Obadiah is going to be a good example of this, by the way. We're going to get to see some key gospel themes here. Uh, But it's true that this is a bit of a break from our Psalms of Ascent journey. Uh, But as we'll see next week, the themes that show up here 
get reflected in the Psalms, right? We'll see some of the same themes next week. And the people of God already have a songbook, a liturgy for handling the types of situations described here in the Psalms. So, but given that this is a bit of a hard break, a bit of a hard shift, I want to just go to God in prayer once more before we dive in to just prepare our hearts. Oh God, we come to you this morning in need of your word. We pray your spirit would speak this morning and not me. And you would enable us to listen and fill us with your spirit as you reveal yourself to us through scripture. Amen. So let's dive in. I'm excited for this. This is, this is going to be fun, I think. The vision of Ob- Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. That's how verse 1 starts off. So right there, two questions that come up. Who is Obadiah and who is Edom? Okay. So Obadiah, unfortunately, we don't know much about. Right? He's a prophet, but we don't really know for sure much beyond that. Uh, there are Obadiahs that show up in Scripture, but it seems to be a relatively common name. Uh, we know he's skilled in the composition of poetry, which much of this book is in verse form. And as it states here, the words that he relays are the word of the Lord. So he's been inspired by God to address Edom. Well, who is Edom? Well, in short, Edom is the nation that is formed of the descendants of Esau. But by way of sort of describing what that is, I want to ask you first, have you ever been involved in a feud? Have you ever been, had a rival? All right, so maybe a person or a group who everything they do seems to just kind of rub you the wrong way. They irritate you, and it seems like it's kind of on purpose. Your fundamental goals are just not in alignment, or maybe they're even opposed to each other. I hope we don't have a ton of feuds and rivals going on, but, you know, we see this lots in, uh, in lots of places in sports, right? Where fans of one team uh, uh, hate fans of other teams, right? Even though they're located within the same town or state uh, because they like the red team and not the blue team. Or in pop culture, where we see two actors who just don't get along, can't work with each other, or two rappers who trade diss tracks, or... Uh, you know, maybe some pop stars out there who's like their whole existence is basically to move from one feud to the next. I'm not going to name any names. But maybe one of the most common forms of rivalry that we're familiar with is this idea of sibling rivalry. So this is like innocuous most of the time. These guys just kind of get on each other's nerves, right? Brothers and sisters uh, might uh, annoy each other, right? But sometimes it blows up into something much bigger, like for the Gallagher brothers, who are the core members of the band Oasis, one of the biggest bands in the 90s. I'm dating myself a little bit here. Uh, but they, this band that was one of the biggest bands in the 90s doesn't exist anymore, primarily because these two brothers just can't stand each other, right? Uh, they can't be in the same room together. Uh, they can't even like, give an interview to a newspaper without insulting each other. Even if the questions have nothing to do with it, they just use it as an occasion to take a shot at their brother. Right? That's kind of funny, but it's also sad. Um, I think it's mostly funny. Uh, but it's even more serious sometimes, right? Like the first set of brothers we have in the Bible, right? They're also the two involved in the first murder. Yes, brotherly relations are some of the most fruitful and fulfilling in life. 
but they're also fraught with rivalry and enmity at times. And it's not more true than anywhere else between Esau and Jacob. So Edom, in short, is another name for Esau. So Esau was the brother of Jacob. Uh, And just like Jacob was later called uh, Israel, Esau was also called Edom. And the names of the nations that came from their descendants took on the names Israel for Jacob and Edom for Esau. So just a quick synopsis of the story that comes from Genesis chapter 25. So Rebekah, who's the wife of Isaac, Isaac being the son of Abraham, they, she has twin sons. And these twin sons are at war with each other, even from within her womb. When they're born, Esau is born first, but Jacob's right behind him, clutching at his heel. As firstborn, Esau is supposed to be the one who receives most of the benefits of being uh, the heir of Isaac, but Jacob manages to extract and trick him out of both his birthright and his blessing. Then from these two brothers are born these two nations. Israel is the one we read about in much of the Old Testament. They spend centuries in Egypt and are ultimately enslaved, and then they're miraculously freed. They spend decades wandering in the desert, and then they're ultimately established in the land of Canaan. And from there, we read of the rise of the kingdom of Israel, which splits, falls into disobedience, and then is slowly swallowed up by the great powers of the ancient Near East. Judah is the southern kingdom after this split that I just mentioned. It's eventually invaded by the Babylonian Empire, and its people are sent into exile. And that may be what Obadiah has in view here in this text. Edom, on the other hand, shows up relatively frequently, not as an ally or friend to Israel, as you might expect because of their familial connection. No, but as a rival. They settled in an area south of Canaan, in a mountainous region of the desert in the hills. And we read in Numbers that uh, when Israel is wandering in the desert and they want to pass through Edom's land peaceably, they are not permitted to. They do not allow them to pass through their land. And after that, that just sets the stage for numerous times when they either revolt against Israel's rule or ally with other enemies of Israel to attack them. And at face value, this seems like a story of warring clans descended from two rivalrous brothers. And uh, there's a bit of a brains versus bronze story going on with Jacob and Esau. There's kind of a Hatfield and McCoy vibe uh, to their descendant stories. It's stretched out over centuries. It all seems kind of petty, maybe, in some ways. It's pretty dramatic at times. But I've purposefully left out a piece of information here that is crucial for understanding the relationship between these two brothers and peoples. In Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 23, we read, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to, the, to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So here, 
we see first that the existence of these two nations is the providential gift of God. And second, we see that it's been ordained and pronounced by God that the two peoples would be established, but that Edom would be subservient to Israel. So this is not just some kind of in-state rivalry where the reasons for their hate for each other are either minor or lost to history, and you can't really distinguish who's in the right and who's in the wrong. We read in Romans 9, 11 through 12, talking about this moment in the tent of Rebekah that this isn't just God predicting, but declaring the just order of Edom serving His people, Israel. We read, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. God has ordained that Edom should be subservient to Israel, and for the most part, Edom has rebelled against that ordering. This is not just striking at distant relatives, which would be bad enough, It's revolting against Yahweh, the Lord, calling His power and providence into question. And so this is not a personal feud, it's a rebellion against the holy God, which helps explain why such a small nation ends up having such an outsized attention in biblical prophecy. Okay, so as we kind of move deeper into the text, uh, I want to look at this section of poetry that we have here. Um, and I can break it up into three sections. First, there's going to be judgment pronounced on prideful Edom. Then we're going to have a list of their crimes. And third, we'll have an expansion of judgment to all nations. So let's start with this judgment pronounced on prideful Edom. In verses 1 through 4, we read this, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So there's a sense of a court document here in some ways in this book. But you might expect judgment, might, you might see like a list of crimes first and then judgment. Maybe we weigh the evidence and consider the demeanor of the defendant, like have they been a good citizen otherwise, first before we move into passing judgment. But here we see judgment is passed. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Perhaps part of this reasoning uh, for having this ordering is because their demeanor is just so arrogant. So in this pattern of repetition that we see in these verses, this poem emphasizes the pride of Edom, who, recall, they live in the cliffs and hills that are generally thought to be defensible, or even some areas, some of their fortresses, thought to be impregnable. Its tone is effectively mocking the Edomites for their trust in their lofty dwelling. There's a sarcastic reference here to their nest among the stars, which one commenter notes, it's like, that's even exaggeration for eagles, right? 
eagles don't have their nests among the stars. This is, this is a kind of over-exaggeration in a, to a sarcastic effect. He's mocking the Edomites. They have their confidence in their physical security in the cleft of the rock, when in their arrogance they have affronted the holy God, who is the rock of salvation and the only source of security and comfort. In their efforts to secure themselves by setting their nests among the stars, they set themselves against the Creator who set the stars in their place, and He will not abide it, and He will bring them down. And it's easy for us to say, what arrogance they have here. But I think in some ways we might have the same kind of assumptions. Who will bring us down, maybe, as, even as Americans, as residents of the U.S.? Do we feel safe, secure, untouchable? In our homes, with our security systems, our password managers, our financial safety net, our nest eggs, are we trusting in something other than the rock of ages? Now, this might not be the main point of Obadiah here, but it's certainly something that the prophet is trying to emphasize and bring our attention to as a warning to all of us reading his words. Obadiah is asserting that such confidence and material comfort and security is not only unwarranted, it's laughable. And just to emphasize this, we can see this at the beginning in verse 1, where God is calling the nations... In their hubris and pride, Edom might have looked at Israel's distress not as a sign of God's power in addressing the sins of Israel, which is what it actually was, but as a sign of Yahweh's weakness. The God of Israel was just that then, the God of a small, ancient, Near Eastern principality of Israel that had been swept aside by the might of the great empire of the day. But what verse 1 makes clear is that our God is the God of all nations, and no power or principality is beyond His sovereign control, and no cleft of a rock could save save Edom from that. The Edomites have completely misread the situation. They've completely missed the point of what's happening to Israel. And because of this, in verse 5 through 6, we see that the judgment on them will be utter and complete If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. The poetic effect here of this passage, it's evoking this image of Edom being robbed and stripped clean of its fruit, but it's not enough to use those metaphors. Because even thieves, if they loot your house, they're going to get bogged down with all that they've gathered and have to leave eventually, right? And that someone harvesting has to move quickly enough so that the crop doesn't spoil, that they'll inevitably miss some spots. But that's not enough to describe what will happen to Edom. It's complete and utter desolation. Then in verses 7 through 9, we hear, see this emphasis again on their reliance on physical security. We read, all your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau, 
Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Again, we see uh, they're misplacing their trust in their allies, who, by the way, God is the God of their allies. Uh, Their reliance on wisdom, which they greatly valued, has been misplaced as well. And their reliance on their mighty men has also been misplaced. But why such a harsh sentence here? Cut off by slaughter? Why such retribution? What did they do that was so bad? Well, first, I think the key verse for us to think about that is here in verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, As one commenter notes, Obadiah is beckoning us back to the tent of Rebekah where the Lord first revealed his order for these two sons, Jacob and Esau. These two nations, Israel and Edom, the older shall serve the younger, is not a description in passing. It has been ordained by God. And Edom's continued enmity, rebellion, and violence against Israel is a rebellion against that order. It's not just sibling rivalry or violence against a brother. It's an offense to the holy God. And the result is pretty dark. And not only that, from verses 11 to 14, we get a full description of the extent to which Edom has perpetrated and abetted the violence against Israel. So either describing events that have already occurred or would occur, depending on how you date Obadiah, we read that Edom's behavior in the wake of a foreign invasion goes something like this. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. I think the best you could say about Edom, the moment of Israel's fall and capture, is that they were indifferent. And the worst is that you can say they were collaborators. And Obadiah doesn't seem to make much of a distinction here, saying you were like one of them. And in the wake of this tragedy, Edom takes advantage. As refugees poured out of the promised land, seeking refuge, their kin, the Edomites, captured them and handed them over. This might be understandable if they felt they, had to, they were facing destruction themselves and this was all that they could do, but that doesn't seem to be their motivation here. They loot and raid the remaining wealth of Israel. They encroach on Israelite land and they give no quarter to those fleeing. And they do so with glee and boasting. They gloat over what has come upon Israel. The violence done to Jacob is born of a hatred not grounded in petty disputes, but in a rebellion against God's ordering of their relationship. It's a reversal of the providential ordering, and God will not abide it. Now, if we begin to find ourselves sort of judging Edom ourselves, saying in our hearts, well, it seems like they're going to get what they deserved, right? 
There's a pretty big shift here in verse 15, right? We read, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So there's a sense in which Israel is in this moment experiencing a kind of day of the Lord in the midst of what is perhaps the Babylonian invasion and captivity. It's rightly deserved for their sinfulness, but Edom is mistaken if it thinks that the same won't be applied to them. And so are we. This concept of the day of the Lord is a concept of God finally establishing his rule and reversing evil and injustice in the world. And we hear that and we're tempted to say, yes, that's great. But keep in mind the, what the prophet Amos in chapter 5.18 said to Israel, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And we see that it's because this judgment is not reserved solely for Edom, but it will be applied to all nations for their actions. In verse 16, we read, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. This is a picture of reaping and sowing. Pouring out on others, then drinking the same cup. One commenter puts it that this is kind of drinking into oblivion here, where Yahweh is in effect getting uh, them drunker and ever drunker until they die in a stupor. It's the same kind of oblivion that's promised to Edom. And there's no real out here for any particular group, right? This applies to all nations. It applies to everyone. We read in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the day of the Lord means darkness and not light. Again, this highlights the fact that the God of Israel is the God of all creation, of all nations. And His judgment for sin and His providence is not limited by the borders of Canaan, but instead it's pervasive and it fills the whole world. But okay, verses 17 to 18, we get, start to get a glimmer of hope. Stick with me here, all right? But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So despite their present calamity, God will keep his promises to Israel. While there is utter destruction for Esau, some of the house of Jacob will escape. The land given to his people will be restored, and they will once again be called holy, set apart his people. At the end of the passage, then, we see this prose section where he goes on to list the areas that will be repossessed by Israel that Edom or other nations had encroached on. But to drive home the point that this is offered to his chosen people, he reiterates, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Israel will be a means through which Esau is consumed. And the key here is that for those who set themselves against the people of God, not just Edom, there's only one promise, and that is destruction and death. But for those who God has called his people, there is a promise of life. 
the apparent reversal of the ordained order where Edom had, uh, had, was risen in ascendancy over Israel will itself be reversed. That's the promise that we see here. So how do we view this in light thousands of years later, in light of what's been revealed to us with the coming of Christ and the passage of time and what we've seen in the gospel. So, of course, I think we can read this text as a specific calling down of judgment on Edom and the promise of restoration of Israel as, their, as political entities, right? And that was eventually fulfilled in the centuries that followed. So, we can definitely read it as a description of something that happened or would happen uh, for the nations of Israel and Edom. But we also know from Matthew 5.18 that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. We know that like a river that ebbs and flows and meanders, but ultimately leads to the ocean, all Scripture ends in Christ. So what does that passage, this passage say about Christ? What does it say about the gospel Well, maybe our first inclination is to read this and to think of ourselves maybe in the role of God's people, in the role of Israel and Jacob, and maybe Edom is the world, evil in the world perhaps. I want to come back to this because I think there is a legitimate reading here, but I first want to consider the following typological interpretation. What do I mean by typological? Well, this is a use of a particular individual as a type that represents a larger body. So you see this often with like kings or generals where we say like King Henry went out to fight or Alexander defeated them in battle. Like that's not just one dude fighting, right? Like there's a bunch of people that he is representing in that case, a stand-in for the whole group. And in this text, we've seen that numerous times, right? We've seen Jacob and Israel, Israel are interchangeable, both for the person's name and the nation. The same for Esau and Edom, right? This text is inviting that kind of reading, and we know based on the revelation of Jesus Christ and the fullness of time that he is the type, the betterment of all the types of figures who stand in for the nation of Israel. He's the perfect David. He's the better Israel. He's the Lion of Judah. Matthew 2 makes this connection when, when Joseph took Mary and Jesus to Egypt. In verses 14 through 15, he quotes from Hosea when he says, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, reading Hosea, that's clearly speaking about how Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt by God, but Matthew is making the point is that the same way that Jesus makes this point that it can also be applied to Jesus himself. Why? Because Jesus is the true and faithful Israel, the type of Israel, the Israel that never sinned or strayed, that was obedient to death, and so is rightly heralded as king and the personification of Israel. So, as sovereign Christ the King can be called Israel in this typological way. Here's an interesting thing to note. This blew my mind. Uh, so Herod the Great, right, who was the one who, uh, who, who was the cause of the flight to Egypt for Jesus and Mary and Joseph, right, he was born in Edomia, 
And if that sounds a lot like Edom, it's because it's the same place. Yeah, Herod is an Edomite. He is a descendant of Esau, the Herod that drove Joseph and Mary along with Jesus from Israel to Egypt was in all likelihood a son of Esau. And likewise, his son, or his descendant who could hardly be bothered when Jesus was brought before him prior to his crucifixion, he ultimate, this, this king who ultimately mocked him when he wouldn't perform tricks for him, well, Edom persecuted. This is, this is, again, a descendant of Esau. This is Edom persecuting and mocking Israel. So we can see Jesus here in this text as Israel. But where does that then put us? Well, I think uh, it's also interesting to note that some com- commenters have that Edom has the same consonants in Hebrew as Adam. And there's also a reference to Edom in Amos 9 where we are, they're used interchangeably. So Edom stands in place for Adam, for man, for humanity. If that kind of grammatical sort of argument doesn't make much sense to you, I, I think we it's not much of a stretch from Obadiah here. We move seamlessly from talking about Edom to talking about the nations, right? So rather than reading ourselves into the story as God's people first, we have to recognize that we were once Esau and Edom, standing aloof, holding Christ, Israel personified, in contempt, deserving of death, complete and utter destruction. But here's the really good news. There's yet another reversal. There's another twist. Just like Jesus turns the law on its head by claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, by cleansing lepers rather than being made unclean by them, he takes the cup that we have poured out for ourselves, that we deserve to drink ourselves into oblivion with on the day of the Lord, and he drinks it himself. Jesus was abandoned by his brothers. Lots were cast over his clothes. And from a human perspective, it's, it's hard to call anything, call the crucifixion anything but a calamity. But by dying on the cross, Jesus accomplished the ultimate reversal where he, the true and better Israel, took humanity's cup so that we might not be destroyed, but that we might be grafted into the vine of God's chosen people, that we might be saved from destruction, that we might have escape. In his resurrection, we see his triumph over sin and death and the promise of our restoration. It's interesting, again, to note that in that Amos 9 passage I mentioned earlier, Amos is talking about the restoration of Israel. We read these words, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Here we see hope for the remnant of Edom as a representative people standing in for the nations, for the Gentiles, that they will ultimately be possessed. There's a sense in which you can view being possessed as negative, but recall that this is the right ordering, that Edom would be ruled by Israel. And if we think of Israel as Jesus, the good ruler, it is a good thing for us to be possessed by the true Israel, by the one who calls us by his name. 
And that's what we read in verses 19 through 20, where the possessions of the enemies of Israel are brought under the, the rule of Israel. So in this short little book, I think from our standpoint today, thousands of years later, I think we can find uh, a call uh, and a reason for hope. For those of you who do not trust in Christ today, who have not taken the free gift of grace God has lovingly given us by repenting of your sin, turning and following Christ, there is a call here to do so. I ask that you seek someone out today who you know is a Christian and ask them what it means to follow Christ. Come talk with me or one of the staff or elders uh, in the back wearing lanyards, um, what it means to be adopted as part of the people of God. And for those of us who follow Christ, I think we can take heart from this. Now that we have been grafted in, brought into the promise with God's people through Christ Jesus, we can view the verses promising escape from judgment and an inheritance. That's now ours. We have that. As we look around this valley, any hostility we see towards us, the first thing we know is that such was our state, prideful and arrogant, sure in our own knowledge and abilities. But thanks be to God, He saved us. He brought us into the fold. And we're now no longer strangers and enemies, but brothers with Christ. Part of the family. So we can share the truth of the gospel with our community in love and grace, because that's exactly what we have been shown. We can stand firm in the truth, too, because we know that the hostility of this world will not last that ultimately Christ the King, the fulfillment of the prophets and law, will, be put, will put all nations under his rule. Every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mount Esau, the symbol of Edom and the world, will be ruled sovereignly by Christ Jesus our Lord. This is happening now as Jesus and the apostles have sent forth from Zion messengers of the good news over the centuries. And over the centuries, all types of nations have been reached for the gospel. And long may that continue until Christ returns and completes his work. From verse 21 of our text, we read, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. God, you are a sovereign God, King of kings and Lord of lords, ruler and sovereign of all nations. There is nothing beyond your grasp and your work. You work your plans to perfection. God, we confess we do not always understand your plans. We think ourselves wise, secure in our own abilities and understanding. We thank you that you are patient with us, bearing with us and gracious towards us. You've given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his own life for our sins, securing our salvation for us, taking away the cup of judgment we deserve. We pray that you would draw those to you here today seeking answers, that they would put their trust in you and see that your way is the way of life. We pray for those in Christ that they would have confidence in the ultimate vindication, that they would see 
seek to reach those in the world with the good news of the gospel, and that they would look forward to their inheritance as sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.